I'm so glad you're back. Oh my goodness, what turbulent times we're in where suddenly one Sunday we meet, the next Sunday we don't meet, one campus meeting, that other campus not meeting. God will get us all through this. He's going to give us some kind of amazing blessing. But right now I'm not real sure what it is. We'll just have to wait and see. Hey, I do want to say to uh, Charlie and Janie, so you guys know, uh, I don't think it was quite a year ago, they had to move to Duke, uh, North Carolina, where he was to receive a lung transplant. And then he would have to stay there for a considerable amount of time while they monitored him. And uh, just last week, Charlie and Janie moved back to Murfreesboro. He's doing great. They're back home. I know they're home watching us right now. So yeah, let's clap for them. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure you guys want to be here, but don't come back just yet. Wait till you get a little bit stronger before you come back. And maybe for some of us, we may want to wait until we get a vaccination even before we start coming back. It's okay if you stay online. I think our online attendance is pushing about 2,600, 2,700. So it's all cool. I'm glad you're here. We're doing the third in this series, This Is My Story, and i just start with a very quick illustration. I read this some years back. In fact, I think it was in the late 1990s. There was a test pilot, uh, Air Force captain, and she was testing the A-10 Warthog, which, by the way, when I, I remember the story, I went back online and I looked up the A-10 Warthog, and, you know, you don't have to be um, impressed with American ingenuity to be impressed with this thing. It's an amazing machine. It's the Tank Buster. Uh, it has a cannon on it that shoots 3,900 rounds per minute, which is 70 rounds every second of depleted uranium. It carries all kinds of ordnance anyway. So she was in the Arizona deserts doing a test for the uh, Air Force, traveling at 400 miles per hour. She was very close to the ground when control told her to pull up. It was the last thing she ever did. She pulled back on the throttle and immediately hit the ground at 400 miles per hour. You see, she had been flying upside down and didn't know it. And it makes you wonder, how can someone be flying upside down and not know it? Well, part of the answer is that you're traveling 400 miles per hour and you're doing all sorts of maneuvers. Uh, the weather is unpredictable. But part of the explanation is simply this. Sometimes life is moving so fast that if you're not paying attention to the instruments, you're going to get lost. See, she didn't check her instruments. Instead, she depended on her, what? Intuition. And since this sermon, the third in this series, is a sermon about how to be counterintuitive. So you'll remember we started out with this thrust this summer. How do we tell our story? As we come out of the pandemic, what is our story? What is it that God really wants us to be? Several weeks ago, we looked at Genesis chapter 1, and I tried to make the note that God created the heavens and the earth just so he'd have you to love, every piece of it. Whether it's 14 billion light years away or whether it's just next door, it was all created so God could give birth to us and have someone to love. And in fact, he created it to be good. He says, this is good. But then we encountered in the second lesson the fact that though he put us in a utopia, the Garden of Eden, we rebelled against him. Adam and Eve rebelled against God, but don't just blame them. The truth is, every one of us also throws garbage into the water from which we must all drink. We're all destroying God's good creation. We're all in a state of rebellion. And so, as a, as a matter of getting the story right, 
we have to remind ourselves that no amount of effort on our part can redeem us from the mess we've created. You'll remember I, I just made some statements about progressivism in that lesson in which I said it has the right goals, justice, fraternity, brotherhood, peace, but it has the wrong assumption. It assumes that humans are good enough that we can build this ourselves. And it always proves this old truth. Man is neither angel nor demon, but he who wants to be the angel always turns out to be the demon. That the truth is our best efforts to make this world into another utopia always ends in disaster. What we need is deliverance. We need God to rescue us from our efforts to have a utopia, from our uh, mistaken belief that somehow we can live forever because of our own doing, our own technologies and our own sciences, that instead we need rescue. We need what the Bible calls salvation. And today we move to the beginning of the story from, well, I'll put it up here because the images are just so attractive. You don't want to not have them. From, from Eden and its utopia to the forbidden fruit that not only got us thrown out of utopia, and by the way, it's still in our DNA to want utopia. It's still in our DNA to want a perfect world. The reason you want world, the reason it irritates you that the water main breaks at your house. So my house turned 20 this year. My house turns 20. And we were thinking about a 20-year-old birthday party, but instead we got 20-year-old water main break, a leak in the roof, blackbirds in the attic, skunks, in the crawl space and the collapse of the driveway. So it's kind of like, well, at 20 years, evidently, that's about the life expectancy of a house. The reason it's so irritating, the reason it's so irritating is because part of me says it shouldn't be like this. The world shouldn't break like this. Things should just be okay. That utopian genetic structure is inside of us because we were created to spend eternity with God. It's we who broke it when we rebelled against God. And so we lost not only utopia, we lost that relationship with God, that intimate relationship that He once shared with us when the Bible says He walked in the garden in the cool of the evening. And not only that, we lost eternal life because in the utopia of the Garden of Eden, we had access to the tree of life, and each time you ate the fruit of the tree of life, you received, maybe a good word for it would be perennial life, life that never ends. We've lost all of those now. But God restarts the story now with our man, Abraham. So Abraham takes up 15 chapters of the book of Genesis, and I had forgotten just how much I love the story of Abraham until I reread it the last couple of weeks. It's just a marvelous story, beginning at the end of chapter 11 of the book of Genesis and going until Abraham's death at the age of 175 years in Genesis 25. So 15 chapters of Abraham's story. And though if we had time, I would walk through the, the length of uh, Abraham's story because it's that important. It's one of the most important stories in the Bible. Instead, I'm just going to let the Hebrew writer summarize Abraham's story for us because he does this in Hebrews chapter 11. He just gives us kind of the overview of Abraham, and he does so for a life lesson. He wants us to understand something. I'm going to get to it in a second. 
Let me just start by situating Abraham very briefly in his world. We don't know exactly when Abraham lived, probably in the late Middle Bronze Age or the late Bronze Age itself. So that would be maybe 2000 before Jesus to 1700 years before Jesus. He lived in what we call the Levant or the Middle East today or the ancient Near East. He once lived in a thriving city. It's called Ur of the Chaldees in the older translations. It's a Sumerian city, S-U-M, not Sumeria, but Sumerian. And actually is one of the most advanced civilizations ever to exist on planet Earth. Very advanced civilization. So what we can say about Abraham is that he lived a very comfortable life. For 75 years he lives here. But God calls Abraham, and his call is very important. And though I don't have that text on the wall, I want you to know about the call. It occurs in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis where God makes three promises to Abraham. He says, I want you to leave Ur, which is here. I want you to go to a land that I will show you, one where you've never been. By the way, you follow the rivers because this is the desert. This is Saudi Arabia, Arabia today. So this is the desert. So you follow the rivers. He says, I'm going to give you three things. First, I'm going to give you a great nation. There are going to be so many descendants of yours that it's going to be as numerous as the stars of the sky. Second, he says, I'm going to give you a land and it's going to belong to you and your descendants forever. And third, he says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and through you, all nations will forever be blessed. So this is the call of Abraham that occurs here. And now we get to the Hebrew writer, and he wants us to know why God picked Abraham. So I do think it's important to think about it this way. So in the Bible, you have almost uh, an hourglass shape. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are sort of the broad end of an hourglass, and they funnel all the way down to one person, and then it opens back up again to the whole world. And that one person is Abraham. Everything that occurs from Genesis 1 through 11 gets you to Abraham, and everything that occurs after chapter 12 derives from Abraham. Abraham is a pivotal person. It's no wonder why Christians consider him the father of the faithful, why Jews consider him the father of the faithful, and even Muslims consider Ibrahim, Abraham the father of the faithful, that he's that important for the human race. The Hebrew writer wants us to see it. So here's how he says it. By faith, he says, Abraham, when he was called to a place he would later receive, some in Hebrews 11 and verse 8, as his inheritance obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. Now, I want you to see a theme here. I'm going to work a theme. I want you to see what the theme is. So I'll hint at it, and then I'm just going to name it. The first thing I want you to see that will help you understand the theme is Abraham was living a comfortable life in a very first-class, world-class, sophisticated city when God called him. The Jewish rabbi said that Abraham was a maker of idols. That was what he did for a living, manufactured idols. We don't know if that's true or not, but we know that Abraham is 75 years old and he's lived his life in this big, nice, wonderful city. When God calls him and says, hey, you're going to have to leave that comfort behind. So just note that. Let's keep reading. Verses 9 and 10. By faith, Abraham made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign company, a country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, Isaac his son, Jacob um, his, his son, 
who were heirs of, uh, with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. So I just want you to see a second thing. Abraham leaves the comforts and the pleasures of a sophisticated city, the New York City of its day, to go live at the age of 75 in a tent in a country that was not yet his, where he would meet all kinds of resistance. Okay, are you seeing any themes yet? Let's keep going. By faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, by the way, she was 90 years old. Abraham was 100. Sarah was 90 when she had a baby. It should give some of you hope, by the way. She's 90 years old, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so, from this one man, and he as good as dead, Abraham was 100 years old. There's no reason to think a 100-year-old man can have a baby. I mean, Sarah baby. Really no chance that he would have one. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sands on the seashore. So are you seeing the theme come up yet? Well, let's just do a little pause because the Hebrew writer sort of gives us a literary pause here. And he just wants us to understand this is what I'm talking about. He says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. See, this is what faith is. Faith is, he has said in verse 1 of Hebrews 11, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. All these people did exactly what God called them to do, even though they never actually saw the results of the promise with their eyes. You're going to see it in a second. I'm going to point it out. They didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they'd had an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He's prepared a city for them. In the last verses, 17 through uh, 19. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Now, remember, God has said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless all nations through your seed. Abraham at first goes to um, one of the servants who lives there, Hagar. She's an Egyptian woman. Sarah says to Abraham, I'm too old to have a baby. Why don't you have a baby with my servant? By the way, surrogate parenthood it was not uncommon in Abraham's day. It sounds weird to us, but it was not uncommon at all in Abraham's day. So Abraham does, and God says, no, that's not the son. Sarah's going to have a baby. And by the way, we get laughter several times in the Bible when this is announced. Abraham chuckles to himself at first. Yeah, right, she's going to have a baby. She's 90 years old. Then later, Sarah laughs when she finds out, chuckles. Yeah, right, I'm 90 years old. I'm going to have a baby, right. By the way, you know what the word Isaac means in Hebrew? Laughter. It's like, God's going to, I'm never going to let you forget that you laughed about that announcement. I'm never going to let you forget it. So now suddenly they have a baby at the age of 190. And the baby starts to grow up and God says, hey, you know that baby that I'm going to use to bless all nations? I need you now to go put him on an altar and sacrifice him. I mean, it's the craziest test in all the Bible. And here's how the Hebrew writer describes it. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. 
Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a matter of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Okay, here's what I want you to say. This is, this is the rest of the sermon. We'll go until you look like you've lost interest. <laughs> and those of you at home, I can't really tell, so I'm going to assume you're really interested. Everything Abraham does is, here's my word, counterintuitive. This is what I want to drive home with you. Everything Abraham does is counterintuitive. So let's go back to my opening illustration. This Air Force pilot, what was intuitive for her was to pull up, pull back on uh, the stick. That was intuitive. Unfortunately, intuitive killed her. What I want you to see is that since humans have begun to sin, listen carefully, since we polluted, trashed, and marred God's good creation, what feels right is no longer right. We now suddenly have to learn to live counterintuitively if we're going to be in God's kingdom. God's kingdom is not of this world. It can't be because this world is now broken. It's irreparably broken, at least from our perspective. And so what God is calling Abraham to do is to begin to live a counterintuitive life. Abraham, I want you to do everything that you would naturally not do. Think about all the counterintuitives in the world. Just trying to think of some counterintuitives. So, for example, if, you, if your car starts spinning out and you start spinning this direction, what do you do? It's counterintuitive, but you turn into it. If you don't turn into it, you're going to crash. Think about backing up a trailer. It's so hard to back up a trailer because it's counterintuitive to turn the direction that you think you're not supposed to turn. You know, in, in, in the sciences, there are all sorts of counterintuitive things. You know, if you climb to the top of a tower and you take a golf ball or even a tennis ball and you take a heavy cannonball or a bowling ball and you drop them, which one will hit the ground first? What does intuition tell you? It tells you that the bowling ball will hit the ground first because it's, it's a much more massive thing. In fact, you could take not just a bowling ball, let's imagine a ball the size of this building that weighs tons and tons and tons, and you drop it at exactly the same moment as you drop a tennis ball. Which one will hit the ground first? And the answer is they will hit the ground at exactly the same time, no matter how many times you do it. That's counterintuitive. But this is exactly what God has called Abraham to do. Abraham, intuition says stay home and be comfortable. I want you to go live in a tent. Abraham, intuition says stay with your people. Stay there in Ur where you have friends and business relationships. Life is great for you. I want you instead to live in a tent in somebody else's land. Like a Bedouin, like a nomad. Abraham, let me tell you what intuition says. Intuition says you ain't going to have no baby because you are a hundred years old. That's intuition. Sarah, you're 90. I'm looking around. I don't see anybody that looks 90 in here. We've probably got some folks that are in their 60s or 70s. I'm just saying, I don't, you don't really look to me like you're able to have a baby even at 60. Intuition says, no, you can't do this. And God says, hey, guess what? You're going to have a baby. 
at age 90. What I want you to see is that Abraham's entire life is counterintuitive, or if you like this literary term, it's ironic. There's an irony about the Abraham story, that everything you think a rich, wealthy urbanite would do in Sumer, Ur of the Chaldees, he does the opposite of it. Now, here's my question. Why? And that's where we want to end. Why? Why is it that it's counterintuitive now to be Abraham? And here's the answer. You ready? The world is so broken. Everybody in this room is also broken. Physics, it's broken. Biology, it's broken. Psychology, it's broken. Theology is broken. Murfreesboro is broken. The U.S. is broken. China is broken. This world is so broken that if you follow your intuition, you will crash into the ground. What God is doing through Abraham is this. He's saying to Abraham, Abraham, this world is too broken for you. Do what makes sense. Stop it now. I need you to do what I tell you to do from this point forward. You do what I tell you to do. You know what the Bible calls that? Faith. The whole point of the Abraham story is to tell us that we've reached a crosshold, a crossroads, I should say, as humans. We've reached a crossroads. Again, let me just say it. I'm going to say it again because this is how the whole story wraps up. When we were tossed out of our utopia, the Garden of Eden, It did not stop us from wanting a utopia. We still want one. And so what the Lord says is, if you want a utopia, you're going to have to do it my way. If you do it your way, you'll create a disaster. When we were tossed out of Eden, we said, I still want to be spiritual. I still want a relationship with things that are of ultimate value, which is sort of what spirituality means. And God says, if you want a relationship with me, you're going to have to do it my way. It will not work your way. We still want life. We want eternal life. That's why death is still so rude, so in your face, so awful. Occasionally I hear it at funerals. People say, you know, he looks so natural and the casket and all. By the way, if you've ever said that, I love you. I'm not picking on you or anything. But I'm just here to tell you, there's nothing in there that looks natural. I'm not trying to be funny. That is not natural. That's not how you were supposed to be. And the Lord says, if you want to live forever, you cannot do it your way. From here out, you have to do it my way. The Bible word for that is faith. The juncture at which each of you finds yourself right now is this. You will either walk by sight, flying upside down, and someday you're going to pull the throttle and you are going to crash. Or you're going to pick faith in God. And faith in God is going to be counterintuitive. It's going to be ironic. You're going to be going up the down staircase. It's not going to be natural. But then, when did natural work? What good has natural done us? Where did we get doing it our way? How many of you followed your heart? How'd that turn out for you? How many of you were just true to yourselves? How's that working for you? How many people are buried in the ground right now in Rutherford County, Tennessee, who followed their heart? How well did that work for him? The whole point of the Abraham story is to say, I'm God, I'm God, I'm going to rescue you, but you're going to have to do it my way or you will never be rescued. That's faith. That's what faith means.
Or as Paul puts it, you can no longer walk by sight. You get it, right? You can't walk by sight because the things you think you see are not real and your eyes are messed up anyway, even if they were real. Even your eyes aren't true. What we have to do is learn to walk by faith. We do it God's way, as Abraham teaches. In fact, why else is the Abraham story in the Bible if it's not to teach us this? Why 15 chapters on some Bronze Age character that nobody else would care about if it's not to show us that you are not a reliable, how should we say, instrument for recovering what I designed you to be? You're going to have to depend on me. Can I just give you an illustration or two? By the way, you know how many slides I got after this one? Zero. It's done. Here's one. So the Bible says, in many ways, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Okay. Sounds good, right? Love makes the world go around, blah, blah, all that. I'm just here to tell you, sometimes she ain't worth loving. She's not. And sometimes it'd just be easier to leave her. It just would be. Wives, the Bible says, honor your husband. And I'm just here to tell you, I know some of your husbands, they ain't guys I want to honor. They're not honorable people. They're not respectable people. I'm going to tell you what the world says is cut it and leave. And you know what Jesus says? You're following the wrong instruments. I told you to love your wife as Christ loved the church. It may be counterintuitive, but that's what I told you to do. You do it my way and you'll find my blessings. He says to wives, respect your husbands or honor your husbands. By the way, he doesn't say so long as they do this. It is a simple blanket statement, honor your husbands. He doesn't say if they're honorable guys. So here's the deal. It may be counterintuitive. It may be ironic. They may not deserve it. But God's way in marriage is this, do it my way and see what I do with it. I'm just here to tell you, those of you who tried it your way, how'd that work out for you? It's not like my way is going to be better than God's way. It's going to be counterintuitive to follow God in a broken world. It's going to be counterintuitive. If it were intuitive, you wouldn't need God. How about forgiveness? Just take that one. Have you ever been so angry at somebody that you really desperately wanted to hurt them? Even if it's just to say ugly things to them. You just want to hurt them. Because you hurt, you want to hurt them. That's intuition. So I can take it back to marriage because I do marriage counseling. This is it in marriage. I'm so upset with them that I just want to hurt them. That's a very intuitive thing to do. It's a very natural thing to do. Everybody with me? It's very natural. Here's the problem. You were called to live supernatural and counterintuitively. So what Jesus says is, bless those who persecute you and pray for those who mistreat you. What he's teaching us to do is you're going to have to live counterintuitive. If you follow your intuition, if you follow what's natural, you are just going to continue to break this creation. Stop it and walk by faith from here out. I mean, it's real life stuff. I mean, think about even our bodies. You know, God's plan for sexuality is a beautiful life-giving plan. One man, one woman in a committed married relationship for life. That's God's plan. 
anything that deviates from that might feel authentic. You might think to yourself, I'm now discovering the real me. Just read just this past week that an author of children's, uh, Christian children's books just announced this week he's leaving his wife. He's discovered he's uh, same-sex attracted, and he's going to go off and find him a man now. And you know, half the world's going to applaud him and say to him, you know what? I'm so glad you're authentic. You're true to yourself and whatnot. Is that right, really? That's really right? I, I went at his wedding, but I can tell you I've been to a lot of weddings. I've done a lot of weddings. And I, usually I hear a man swear in the presence of God Almighty, I am yours till death separates us. And there's something honorable about abandoning that? Authentic is better than that? What I'm suggesting is God doesn't call us to walk by sight. That's what the world's doing. That's why it's so messed up. Everybody's walking by sight. He calls us to walk by faith, and it's going to be upstream, up the down escalator, ironic, counterintuitive, countercultural, revolutionary, different from the world. And it's not going to be easy. I mean, if you were thinking it's going to be easy, you just haven't been a Christian very long, because that's hard. It's hard to spend your whole life swimming upstream. That's what Abraham had to do. You think it was easy for Abraham to live in a tent? He's 75 years old. Have you slept in a tent lately? Like if he didn't have REI, no REI, no place to go and get a nice foam mattress, no down feathered, uh, you know, uh, sleeping bags, none of, no Eno to sleep in. Think about it. Hard ground, 75. He dies when he's 175 in a tent. It's not going to be easy. It's always going to be countercultural. Your money. See, you can, you can play this out anywhere. What's wrong with being selfish? If I make the money, what's wrong with me keeping my money? It's a very, what is it? Natural thing to do. It's very natural for me to keep my money. It's natural for me to work for it when I make it, for me to spend it on me. That's very intuitive. Very intuitive, right? It's intuitive? Yeah, of course it is. <laughs> look, at all, look at us. It's very intuitive. And what has God called us to do? Live intuitively? Did God call us to live naturally? No. He called us to live counterintuitively. Jesus says this. He says, don't even store up for yourselves treasures here on earth. Store your treasures up in heaven. And you know what he means? He means spend it now on things that matter. Put another way, what he's saying, don't ever love that which you were only supposed to use. You're only supposed to use money. You're never supposed to love it. You use a house, you don't love it. You use a car, you don't love it. Don't ever love that which you were only supposed to use. And the reverse of that's true as well. Don't ever use that which you were supposed to love. Don't use God because he might give you a better life. Don't use a spouse because you think it might satisfy some broken hole deep inside of you. Don't use people. What he's teaching us is never love that which you're supposed to use. Never use that which you're supposed to love. It's going to be countercultural, but that's how we get back to paradise. I'm thinking of a countercultural community, and I guess I'll stop. It was established in 1844 outside of Harvard, Massachusetts. Two guys, they were the original hippies. There are all these uh, communes and these uh, sort of uh, protests to little uh, organizations that have started through the years. America seems to be ground zero for this. 
So two guys who were the original hippies, they were transcendentalists. They believed in God, but not the God of the Bible. They believed in God writ large. You know, God as the permeating force of the universe who is all good. In a sense, they were, they were anti-capitalists, hated organized religion. They were vegan. This is true. 1844, they were vegans. They set up a place that was called Fruitland. You can go up there and see it. Some of the remains are still there. It's now a tourist attraction. They set up a place in uh, 1844 called Fruitland. Listen to how extreme these guys were in their veganism. By the way, I've got vegetarians in my family, so I don't mean to, I'm not knocking. I'm just saying, look at me. I'm just saying. See, I, I think it's unethical to eat anything that can't first run for its life. That's just kind of my, my theory about things. They would not even eat root-based plants for fear of digging up a worm. Yeah. And one of them had such bushy hair, he actually went to jail for having an epic beard. I mean, that's how serious these guys were. They start this commune, this socialist utopia, so to speak, on the conviction that if we try hard enough, we can restore paradise. You know how long it lasted? In seven months, every single one of them was gone at the point of starvation. You see, we can't build the utopia that is embedded in our DNA. We cannot do it. We just can't do it. But God can, and he will. And what he's called me to do in the interim between when he started the rescue and when he intends to complete it when Jesus returns is to go on and start living like the kingdom's already here. That's the crazy thing. I'm in between. I'm in between its inauguration and its culmination. I'm in between. And what I'm told to do is to start now living like it's already here. It's counterintuitive. It's countercultural. It's revolutionary. It is certainly ironic. It's going to be painful. It's going to be hard. And it's the only way back to the Eden I crave. That's the story of Abraham. That's why it matters. He's the father of everyone who says, I'm going to do it God's way. The father of the faithful. Won't we say a prayer and then we'll have our uh, dismissal song. Lord, our invitation song, I should say. Lord, we do pray that you'll fill us with that kind of counterintuitive, ironic, contrary, revolutionary faith that says, no longer my way, now your way. And then, Father, when we step out on that limb, that frightening limb of leaving Ur for a land we don't really even know, please protect us. Please bless us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.